Hello, Internet, and welcome to the Sky Simplified podcast, exploring astronomy through a different perspective, one episode at a time. My name is Pranet Sharma, and I am a high school junior, as well as an absolute lover of everything astronomy. With me today, I have Dr. Andrew Cullison, the director of the Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University in Indiana. And today's episode is all about exploring astronomy through the perspective of a philosopher. If this is your first time here, please make sure to subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and please rate us. Also, the best thing that you can do for this podcast is to share it around. So please let your family, friends, postman, neighbors, grocer, plumber, teacher, professor, anyone who you talk to know about this podcast. Now that we've gotten all that out of the way, it is time to begin. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride. Okay, so let's get started on to today's topic, exploring astronomy through the eyes of a philosopher. Dr. Collison, welcome to the show. We're glad to have you on. Let's take a minute and please share with the listeners about your research interests as well as a little bit about Prindle. Well, Pranet, thanks for having me here. I'm excited about the topic. Uh, so my name's Andy Cullison. Uh, I am the director of the Janet Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University. Uh, the, the main mission of the Institute is to foster ethics, education, dialogue, and research. And we're unique in that we have a national engagement mission. So there's really three buckets. We do a lot of K through 12, or what you might call pre-college philosophy and ethics education and engagement. We, of course, serve the DePaul students and uh, create a lot of opportunities for them when they come to DePaul. And we also do sort of lifelong learner uh, education and leadership developments sort are of on the other side of college for folks, adults who are still interested in talking about this stuff. Fascinating. And um, do you want to talk a little bit about your research and what you're into? Sure. Uh, so I'm interested in a wide range of ethical issues. Um, I'm very interested in the ethics of comedy, uh, sort of when it's okay to make fun of somebody. I'm very interested in ethics and technology issues. And I'm also really, really interested in uh, this area called meta-ethics, which is philosophical questions about ethics. Like, you know, is ethics real or are we making it up? Uh, could, you, could you have moral knowledge like you would have scientific knowledge or knowledge about ordinary, every, everyday things? I'm, I'm really kind of interested in those questions as well. That, those are really interesting. And I really hope that, you know, part of your background into ethics and technology is kind of what's going to drive this episode. So I'm really excited to get this perspective onto astronomy. Um, people often say that STEM and humanities are two distinct fields, but I feel like their combination can yield exciting new disciplines and they push the boundaries of knowledge acquisition. So to discuss this topic, I've kind of curated a series of questions about the potential overlaps of these two fields, as well as a little bit more like some more personal questions about your experience with astronomy. So without further ado, let's begin. So my first question for you, um, before our show, you sent me a link about a course offered in UC Berkeley, which was Ethical Issues in Astronomy, Education, Research, and Enterprise. And I was fascinated by this, and I was really glad that this hybridization was occurring at the collegiate level. Now, you know, as the theme of the podcast is exploring astronomy through this lens of different, different fields, I was wondering, what does astronomy look like through the eyes of a philosopher? 
That's a really good question. Um, I'm, I'm going to give you sort of there's sort of two avenues to pursue thinking about this. So one, there's a there's a joke uh, amongst philosophers that, that goes back to ancient philosophy, which is that philosophy is the queen of the sciences. And roughly what that means is um, questions about how best to go about conducting your inquiry in any of the sciences are actually not scientific questions. They're philosophical questions, right? A scientist will tell you what they see in the world and what they think they see means for some aspect of our reality. Yeah. But if you ask questions like, what counts as good evidence in astronomy? Um, what counts as good evidence is that you hear that word good? Yeah. That's a normative, non-scientific question that's really a philosophical question in an area called epistemology. Epistemology is the is the study of knowledge or, or the study of uh, good evidence or the study of, of good reasoning. And, and all of those things are philosophical questions that it's not clear science is going to tell us. You, you don't run a, an experiment in a lab to figure out what we should count as good evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's one area where I think philosophy intersects with astronomy. When you, when you think real big and take a step back and say, okay, what's the best way to go about doing astronomy? What should we regard as good evidence? What should our practices be? Those are all philosophical questions. So that's one. Uh, and then another big area is ethics, which are basically philosophical questions about right and wrong action. And so there's interesting questions about that that I think astronomers should be thinking about. Um, so those are the two of the biggies. Nice. Yeah, um, I completely agree with you. Um, often, you know, not only just in astronomy, but in a lot of scientific fields, that question about what constitutes good evidence is always at the forefront because, you know, the amount of evidence is what's going to make or break a theory. So I think that is definitely a very central aspect of where these two fields overlap. So um, moving on, um, kids, you know, have always been really curious about the stars, the moon, and the sun. I remember I would be, you know, just sitting in the backseat looking outside, seeing that the moon was following us and have, like, a mixture of terror and, like, amazement that this was actually happening. Um, So did you have any, like, similar formative experiences when you were growing up? Like, what was your first memory of learning, like, something space-related that blew your mind? Well, uh, this is, I mean, this is going to be a a little bit of a sad story, but... um... I was in elementary school when the Challenger exploded. Do you remember? Do you remember this? Do you yeah. remember the story of the yeah. Challenger? The uh, it was it was televised. Like they were showing it to kids all across the country. You were going to be able to watch it live. And so I remember watching the Challenger explode. Yeah. Live on TV. Um, and I remember asking myself. I was like, I, I, w- I remember I, I had a conversation with my dad. I think, and it was. It, the details are hazy because I was really young, but it was effectively like, didn't they know how dangerous this would be? Like, was this like, did they know what they were getting into? And my dad's like, oh yeah, they like the space travel. It's super, super dangerous. It's dangerous work. And I was like, well, why the heck would anybody do that? Why would you, <laughs> why would you strap yourself to a bomb, like mm-hmm. a really, really big bomb mm-hmm. just to go up into a really scary place? And, yeah. My dad was like, well, because that, that should tell you how important people think this work is. Yeah. Uh, you know, they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't be risking their lives um, if they didn't think this was important work. And so, I, you know, 
you don't think of, I mean, I know that being an astronaut is a little bit disconnected from astronomy, but it's still, we're studying celestial yeah, yeah, yeah. bodies and we're, we're interested in celestial bodies. So I, I take that to be kind of in the domain of astronomy. And, you know, you don't really think about the, the fact that that was my first experience of scientists who I sort of mm-hmm. thought like, you know, removed from danger, sort of risking their lives in pursuit of knowledge. And then mm-hmm. um, I think that was sort of my, you know, you know, science is so important that there are people who are willing to risk their lives. Yeah, um, I, I can believe that. That just really stood out to me. Yeah, um, especially like with astronomy, <clears throat> astronauts basically do all the legwork that enable astronomers to get their research done. Like, you know, the space shuttle is what enabled the ISS to be made. It's what made like it's what assembled the Hubble um, Space Telescope and all of these innovations that we have in space right now. It's helping astronomers get so much data in real time that's enabling them to develop their theories and kind of pursue knowledge even further. So, you know, as you mentioned, their role is extremely integral. And again, the fact that they would risk their lives kind of goes to show the power of the science. So moving on, um, ethics and philosophy are very wide fields. um, And in the course, I'm sure, of Ethics Bowl, we've definitely discussed an extremely wide variety of cases um, that can be applied to several studies and disciplines. So have you come across any interesting ethical or philosophical issues in astronomy? Well, I think astronomy is a unique science. It's it's loaded with interesting ethical issues. Um, and it's a very different sort of science in that um, what we have access to uh, is very, very limited. I mean, you you know, for the longest time before we were able to get anybody even up into space, we were limited to um, just looking into the sky. Exactly. Right? Yeah. <laughs> that, that was our that's our data set. We didn't, mm-hmm. you know, you don't have the rich resources that a biologist has yeah. or that a chemist has, where they can like, you know, they get to they get to actually physically touch the chemicals that mm-hmm. they're observing and all all that kind of stuff. So, it's it's an incredibly limited in terms of what the data is. And so I think it's a good case study in terms of what we count, what we regard as good evidence, that mm-hmm. question we were talking about before. Exactly, yeah. Right? The, um, you know, uh, I often actually, when I introduce the concept of inference to the best explanation, a method of reasoning in the sciences, I use an astronomy example because it's it's sort of the purest kind of inference to the best explanation because the data is so limited. So I'll give you the example. Um, you know, when you... When when we when we first started discovering planets, the way we started discovering planets was we would see an otherwise perfectly circular star that we're looking at, and there'd just be like this little bubble that sort of blips out, and that bubble would regularly kind of rotate around the star, and they yeah. thought, well, what the heck is going on there? What, yeah. What's this blip? You don't you don't actually physically see the planet, mm-hmm. and um, so what what happens is people say I've discovered a planet. Why do you think you've discovered a planet? And you're like, because that's the only explanation of this weird thing I'm observing is that the gravity from the the planet is sort of pulling out bits of the star, and we're seeing that reflected in the light. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a that's my favorite example of showing people like we readily accept believing in things on the basis of it being the best explanation without ever directly observing the thing in question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I so that, that's, that's one. Yeah. That's like, that's like a philosophical one. Um, like a, an epistemological one rather. And then ethics, I think astronomers face 
a ton of ethical issues uh, related to ethics and technology. So I'm, I'm thinking uh, one is <clears throat> there's a question about whether or not we would be obliged to fund uh, yeah. astronomy type investigations. Um, this is less of an ethical issue for astronomers, but maybe a societal or a political issue. And I think there's a strong duty for humanity to invest in astronomical research, <laughs> in part because I'm, I'm kind of a believer of what Stephen Hawking said, which is the greatest threat to humanity is like an extinction event on this planet. Right. And and he thought he thought we should be almost exclusively focused on researching the solar system and the surrounding galaxies to see if we can't find some livable planets mm -hmm. that we might be able to get humanity onto. Exactly. And yeah. I, that that sounds chicken little in doomsday scenario, but to be honest, I think it's not a matter of if, but when. But, you know, if humanity is going to continue in this universe, you might think that astronomy is our best hope. Um, so that's that's one. And then individual astronomers are going to face ethical issues as well. So, um, you know, I think any science uh, really has to grapple with what are the evil ways in which the results of our research could be utilized, right? Mm -hmm. In particular, in what ways could humanity learn to weaponize the results of our work, right? Biologists are worried about, great, like if I develop this tool to hack genes, is the military going to use it? Yeah. Chemists, if I develop some some new kind of chemical or some kind of new substance that has highly combustible properties, yeah. how, how's the army going to use this? Well, you might think looking at stars doesn't have much to do with the military, but there are a whole host of ways that a military could weaponize the results of mm -hmm. things we learn via astronomy. Mm -hmm. Ways to you know control the planet more effectively, ways to get more deadly weapons uh, up in the outer reaches of the atmosphere, you know, all, all sorts of, all sorts of things, I think. Exactly. And um, um, a lot of, I think the, or like the technology that makes astronomical pursuit possible and like getting the data in the first place, a lot of that could also potentially be weaponized, you know, and as you mentioned, that is a huge consideration that astronomers would have to make when they're developing those technologies. I'll give you one more if, if you want. Um, sure. This, yeah. this may seem a little far fetched, but, um, I once read an article where someone said, hey, maybe we shouldn't be looking for signs of life elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And and roughly the, the rationale was, if there is intelligent life out mm -hmm. there that can communicate with us, that's intelligent enough to communicate with us and intelligent enough to find us, maybe we should be afraid of that, right? Like, yeah. like the, you know, there's... One of us is more advanced, and yeah. the, the probability – if we are early in our space exploration, mm -hmm. the odds are that any intelligent life that's capable of finding us mm -hmm. is probably more advanced. Yeah. And you know, history shows when you've got two species mm -hmm. that are so radically different, yeah. they each will regard the other one as very other and very much – yeah. Okay to destroy. Yeah. Um. So you know, I I I I sort of mused. I was like, you know, do we do we want like you know the idea of like sending signals out there so we can be found? Like, exactly. maybe do we want to be found do, in the first do, place. Yeah. Do we want to maybe just keep a low profile yeah. uh, and hope that any <laughs> hope that any uh, 
you know, large alien population just sees us as some backwater, something with maybe some bacteria on it. And that's it. Yeah. Like maybe we want to keep a low profile. Yeah. I don't really know the answer to that question, but I mean, I, it's a question we should ask ourselves. I, I completely Do we agree, want yeah. to be? Exactly. Um, I think the potential of being found with like by an intelligent, first of all, like finding an intelligent species other than ourselves in space is it's, it's a very low probability if we haven't found them yeah. already it's more likely if we find life it's going to be microorganisms or something similar um I agree. but then as you mentioned the probability of that life being hostile comparatively is a lot higher because if there yeah. are you know and as you mentioned history has shown it two competing populations they're gonna decimate each other in some way or the other so i agree we definitely should take care of that um, so I wanted to kind of discuss a more technological issue, given that that is kind of your um, specialty. So SpaceX um, has a satellite program that they're launching called Starlink, and it aims to put a lot of satellites in the sky that could provide affordable internet. Now, the issue with this, you know, it sounds great, but astronomers have demonstrated that this kind of hinders their studies, as whenever they take, like, long exposure shots of the sky, like, the satellites form streaks of white light across the image, blocking out any starlight behind them. So, you know, this prevents observation of objects past Neptune, and it could potentially block asteroid threats, which could cause extinction. Um, of course, SpaceX isn't the only uh, technology company doing this. Other satellites are also being put in the sky, and those satellites could potentially block our view of anything coming from outer space. So the question is, what ethical considerations do you think SpaceX or any technology company should be making in this situation? You know, this is a really good issue, Pranet. Um, so this this raises a this raises a host of issues, actually. So, so one is a kind of rights or property issue, like mm -hmm. who has a right to the airspace? Yeah. Right. Is it is it something that we should regard as like a public good? And 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 there are international issues as well, right? So there's it's it's not like America owns the skies. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is something that um, is in. So you know, SpaceX, an American company is encroaching on the skies of other nations. So there's an international uh, cooperation kind of consideration. But, you know, this is this has always been the situation with with technology. There's a there's a de there's a delicate balancing act of the technological advance changes the way that we interact with something in a particular way. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, this requires like strong uh, government institutions to sort of figure out how can we let companies like SpaceX achieve some of their goals, but not frustrate goals that are sort of part of what you might regard as the greater good. Mm -hmm. uh, now, I don't know too much about the science behind it, but it, but it seems like it's it's well past time to start sort of mapping out what are the rules for, you know, sending things around our planet. Right. Um, and it's going to require quite a bit of cooperation between nation states. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's not just a U.S. issue. Yeah. Um, you know, the major, the major players on the world stage really do need to start taking this a little bit more seriously. Mm -hmm. Um, but um, I do think companies like SpaceX are are large enough 
and impactful on so many lives that don't directly interact with them mm-hmm. that they do start to take on obligations uh, to yeah. consider how their how their actions affect others. Sometimes companies get large enough and they impact people outside of their customer base so mm-hmm. significantly mm-hmm. that um, you know the reality is I think we ought to start thinking of them as almost like nation states of dirt, like whatever dirt, we would right. say. Yeah, yeah. So like even Zuckerberg once joked mm-hmm. um, that Facebook is more appropriately thought of as like a nation with a population of however many users that yeah. Facebook has. Um, Fox even had this interesting article that Facebook is a nation state and Zuckerberg mm-hmm. is the king. Wow. Um, you know, as these companies get larger and larger and again, impact people who are in no way their customer base. Yes. Um, right. That. That's that's the crucial part because a lot of people think let companies do whatever they want and if people don't like it they won't buy their product. Mm-hmm. That's true if the only people they offend are their customers. Mm-hmm. But if a company gets large enough and starts to impact people who can't you know persuade them to do otherwise because yeah. they don't care about their dollars, yeah. then we we need to start thinking more seriously about how we view large organizations like SpaceX. Right. And um, kind of just to follow up, I was doing a bit more research about this issue. And um, SpaceX has started to coat their satellites with like a black material that dims like the reflection, but not completely. So what's your um, view on, you know, doing that? Do you think that's enough? Do you think that they should go even further? Do you think that they're giving enough ethical consideration to this fact? Well, um you know, whether the dimming works or not is a scientific question that astronomers are going to have to help us answer. Do you know how they first tested telescopes, how they first confirmed that telescopes would accurately tell us what's on the moon? How did they prove to skeptics that the telescope really was magnifying something far away accurate? So first they would kind of clarify that the telescopes were working. And um, especially in Galileo's day, before Galileo, telescopes were mostly used to kind of look at other objects far away from you on Earth. So kind of the trope that, you know, most people have seen of pirates having spy glasses to look in the distance. And they would first confirm that the telescope was accurately magnifying things on Earth. Then when Galileo pointed it at the heavens and was like, wait, we see sunspots, we see craters on the moon, people didn't doubt him because they knew that those telescopes were true. And the same thing is true with the Hubble Space Telescope. Like they pointed it at objects that we'd already observed from Earth just to confirm those findings kind of. And then from there they could kind of take the liberties of looking at more complex new things. Right, good. And so, so it seems like we'd need to do something like that, a controlled test, which mm-hmm. is, you know, okay, SpaceX, if the dimming stuff really doesn't distort it, mm-hmm. we need to point our telescope at the sky when your dimmed satellites are going through. Mm-hmm. But then the question is, what's the control group? How do, we, right. how do we test that your dimming stuff isn't actually distorting things in weird ways that we hadn't even exactly. predicted? And at this uh, point, um, so, it, it's like too late because you can't get rid of the satellite now that it's in. Like, you can't feasibly just remove the satellite from the picture. It's just going to be there. Yeah, exactly. So I don't, the, I don't know how we actually test for um, whether or not SpaceX dimming uh, gives us an accurate view of the sky again. Yeah. They're already up there. Yeah. The, the well guess, is poisoned. Um, yeah, I guess they'll just have to kind of play it by ear and see, you know, if it significantly affects our findings. 
and maybe we'll find a solution in the future. Who knows? Um, yeah. So moving on, like another interesting overlap between philosophy and ethics and astronomy is that, you know, Greek philosophers like Aristotle or Edestines, they were actually really instrumental in the ancient study of astronomy. Aristotle was among the first to reject the flat earth theory, which a lot of people today should really know about. Um, and Eratosthenes calculated the circumference of the earth, which it's an, it's a really cool way that he did it. And I won't go into it too much now, but listeners, you can find the way that he did it on my website under history of astronomy. Um, but he was able to accurately calculate the circumference of the earth. So in what ways do you think that their backgrounds in philosophy could have helped them better develop these studies into like astronomical topics? And do you think this could be applicable even in today and like, potentially tomorrow's world where philosophy helps drive astronomy? That's a really good question too, Pranet. And I think one of the ways um, that their backgrounds in philosophy probably helped uh, is sort of what we were talking about before. One of the areas of philosophy mm -hmm. is just thinking carefully about what counts as good evidence for what. Mm -hmm. um, and if you're, if you're obsessed with that question, as you turn your eye to the sky, you're going to be very critical and reflective about, okay, what is it that I'm seeing and, and what is it actually giving me evidence for about the nature of reality? Mm -hmm. um, and so philosophy also inspires quite a bit of creative thinking. So someone who is good at thinking through philosophical puzzles is going to be good at thinking through all sorts of other problem-solving kinds of kinds of puzzles. It was, I I'm, I actually don't know the story about how this philosopher calculated the circumference of the Earth. I can't wait to actually go read about it on your show mm -hmm. notes page. But, um, you know, I'm going to hazard a guess that it was his general critical thinking skills that philosophy, the study of philosophy, tends to cultivate mm -hmm. that probably gave him some insight into how he might actually be able to calculate something. Yeah, like you're this. absolutely right. It was a very logical, rational process that he followed. Um, I won't spoil it, of course. I do want you guys to read it because the post that I wrote is going to do way more justice than me talking about it here. But I think that's a very significant point that, you know, philosophy kind of teaches you how to think in the right way. And that's what's going to help you solve problems in astronomy whenever you're trying to find things about the universe. Do you think like kind of as we go into the future, like astronomy diversifies, expands and thunders towards a new horizon, ethics will be even more important? You know, one topic that comes to mind about the potential future of astronomy is asteroid mining. And people say it's going to give the world's first trillionaires. So, you know, given such activities, how do you think like the relevance of ethics is going to change over time in astronomy? Well, I mean, I can say two things with confidence. Um, it is almost certainly going to introduce new ethical challenges. And we have no idea what some of those challenges are going to be. That's the yeah. that's the thing that I find so fascinating about ethics and technology is it ethics and technology almost always any any technological advance almost always results in a oh my gosh I had no idea that going down this path would lead us down this moral dilemma path as well. Right. Um, and so the the main thing is we just need to be vigilant. We need to be constantly thinking about what is it that we're what methods are we using and in what ways could these things come back to bite us? Um, yeah. so asteroid mining is a really good example. Mm -hmm. Um it's uh there are going to be questions about bringing material they're bringing foreign materials to to earth 
you know, you, what if you bring some superbug back or, you know, those kinds of things. I mean, folks living through COVID-19 right now, mm-hmm. right, the idea of doing something that might uh, engender some other kind of calamity, we, we need to be very intentional and careful. But also, if you, if you take the idea of income inequality seriously, uh, this could just exacerbate the problem. Um, and an, another kind of income inequality thing that, you know, as we get into New Horizons, as we develop the ability to uh, create settlements on, on other, you know, moons, asteroids, wherever we decide we want to set up, set up shop, uh, who gets to go? And, exactly. and who gets yeah. to decide who goes? Yeah. Um, and if uh, if we are just going to abandon this planet to chaos, climate change, whatever, yeah. Um, willing to bet that the people who get to escape it are going to be some of those trillionaires. Yeah. Um, who own the asteroids? Who own the companies mm-hmm. that uh, send us there? So there's there's significant issues about the, to be thinking about about the privatization mm-hmm. of astronomy as well. Yeah, I completely agree. And um, I just kind of wanted to take a moment to plug my personal favorite movie um, because I think that it does a very good job of talking about the future of astronomy and how ethics could be related to it. So listeners, if you haven't, make sure to check out Interstellar because I think it does an excellent job of portraying a more realistic future of astronomy you know, rather than the most, oh, they're aliens and we're killing them. It kind of talks about how, you know, our Earth is going in decline. There's blight, there's famine, there's dust storms. And in order to escape to the skies, what methods are we going to use? And of course, I won't spoil the plot, but definitely go check that out. It's going to go into a lot of detail about the kind of combination of ethics, philosophy, and astronomy in really cool ways. So um, that actually wraps up our questions. Thank you so much, Dr. Collison, for coming on the show. Um, is there anything, you know, just some parting words you'd like to share with the listeners? Any message to the students, philosophers, or astronomers that might be listening? Uh, that's okay. You know, as a philosopher who likes to talk all the time, I'm kind of at a loss for words at the moment. Um, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'd say... Um, any any field you go into, uh, whether it's astronomy, biology, any I, I imagine a lot of your listeners are going to be very STEM focused. Um, pay pay close attention when when you start thinking about things in your field. Pay close attention to when the questions you're asking yourselves are questions that it's not clear your own scientific discipline can answer. Because scientists are faced with loads of questions about ethics about evidence, about what's worthy of pursuit or not worthy of pursuit. And, and sometimes I think they forget that they've, they've stopped being scientists when they engage in those questions and that they're, they're actually they're taking on the mantle of a philosopher. Yeah. Uh, you're asking yourself philosophical questions. So in your, in your pursuit of science, uh, d- don't forget that you're going to face loads of philosophical questions and uh, spending some time thinking about philosophy, thinking about epistemology, thinking about ethics, um, that, that that would uh, not be a waste of your time. And, and you might find that it helps make you a better scientist. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. Collison, for coming on the show. I really appreciate your time. And I personally am very enlightened by this conversation. And I hope you, the listener, are as well. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Collison and any of his work, please visit www.prindleinstitute.org. 
If you have any questions about the episode or have any questions about the podcast as a whole, please direct them to pernet at skysimplified.com or visit the contact portal on www.skysimplified.com. Thank you, listeners, for sticking through this. This has been amazingly fun, and I couldn't have done it without your support. As always, take care and clear skies. The Sky Simplified podcast is created, hosted, produced, and edited by Pranet Sharma. The music is by Pranet Sharma. Thank you for listening, and as always, clear skies.